Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Good evening and welcome to the John Whitmer Show sponsored by Wink Hartman and the Hartman Group of Companies. My name is Patrick Pence filling in for John Whitmer this evening. We're happy that you joined us tonight here at your local liberal resistance headquarters where we proudly champion the conservative principles of limited government, individual liberty, free enterprise, and traditional fa- uh, family values. We're here, and we're pleased to have you with us this evening. If you'd like to call into our studio, our lines are open, and you can reach us at 316-869-1330 by email at john at knssradio.com, on Facebook at The John Whitmer Show, and on Twitter at John, w- john R. Whitmer. So reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Now... We have another great show planned for you tonight, and I'll be discussing Joe Biden's ongoing border crisis with Chris T. Clem, a 25-year veteran of the U.S. Border Patrol, who spent the last three years as the chief patrol agent for the Yuma, Arizona sector. Attorney General Chris Kobach will join us to talk about why his office is challenging six Kansas school districts who have policies that allow schools to socially transition students without the parents' knowledge or consent. Tony Lyons, the co-founder of American Values 2024, the RFK Junior Super PAC, will be with us uh, to discuss whether Kennedy will be able to qualify for enough ballots nationwide as an uh, independent heading into the general election after unsuccessfully primarying uh, Joe Biden. Now, Wichita school board members Hazel Stabler and Diane Albert will be joining us to discuss USD 259's recent decision to close two middle schools and four elementary schools. We'll have House Majority Leader Chris Croft on to bring us our weekly Under the Dome legislative update from Topeka. And Register of Deeds for Cedric County, Tanya Buckingham, will join us to show us how Cedric County residents can safeguard their property with the new property activity alert. And, of course, we'll be taking your calls at 316-869-1330. So, my friends, let's get into it. As you know, uh, I'm sure February is Black History Month. And it's a month where we celebrate the achievements, the struggles, the undeniable contributions of black Americans throughout our nation's history. Black history is American history. And as we look at those black Americans who have come before us, who have reached the top of their game, the pinnacle of every field of endeavor, we also recognize those who came alongside them, behind them, around them, and surrounded them with all the love, the care, the attention, the mentorship, everything that was necessary and proper to get them to those places of prominence. So not only our sung heroes, but also our unsung heroes of every race are also important. Black History Month helps us to reaffirm our humanity and gives us an opportunity 
to recognize and chart our future, and it helps to restore our hope for tomorrow. We have a collective humanity. We have to recognize that we have the right to educational freedom and choice, that we have the right to employment opportunities. And when we endeavor to do economic development inside of our communities, when we make those decisions to follow our faith and live out our traditional family values and also abide by a sense of eternal victorhood uh, mentality and not a victimhood mentality, we see that we can chart a path to the future, even inside of our own communities, whether they be brown, black, white, or whatever. And as we reflect on those legacies of those who've come before us, it's also crucial, my friends, that we also examine the political landscape, particularly when it comes to the relationship between our Republican Party and minority communities. And despite some of the best efforts of some in current leadership and committee chairmanships at the Kansas Republican Party, Kansas Republicans welcome diversity into our party, and we embrace those who share our values regardless of their skin color. I also want to address something head on, and there, there's a misconception out there perpetuated by the left that the Republican Party somehow doesn't care about minority voters. But let me tell you something. I know this is true because I have firsthand experience. Nothing could be farther from the truth of this insinuation. We, the GOP, the Grand Opportunity Party, as Senator Tim Scott calls it, we are the party of opportunity. We are the party of freedom. We are the party of equality for all Americans, regardless of race and regardless of background. And this Black History Month, it's time to set this record straight. Y'all see, the Democrats have taken minority voters for granted for far too long. They roll out the same old tired promises every election cycle. And yet, what have they really done to uplift these communities? Just look at the failing schools, which we're going to get into tonight. The crime-ridden neighborhoods that you see plastered all over the evening news. The lack of economic opportunity that we see every time there's a rollout of the stats. That is the legacy of decades of democratic control in our inner cities. And now we're finally seeing it in the polls. Black voters are catching on to the old con. In fact, y'all, I want to go one step further, if you allow me. Democrat policies are destroying black communities. They incentivize a sense of dependence. And I'm not just talking about your little Obama phone. The welfare state has systematically removed black fathers from black families, replaced it with the government as daddy, and therefore incentivizing single motherhood, incentivizing fatherless child, uh, fatherless uh, communities. The stats don't lie. In fact, they flipped. We've gone from in about 1960s, 80% married, 20% not married fathers in the homes, to now in the 90s is completely flip-flopped to 2080, all because Democrat policies replace black fathers with government dependents. But it doesn't have to be this way. The Republican Party is a big tent. We welcome all who share our values of hard work, personal responsibility, and individual liberty. And let me remind you of the words of President Ronald Reagan, who famously said, freedom is never more than just one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed down for them to do the same. My friends, those words ring true today 
as they did when Reagan first spoke them. Freedom is the birthright of every American, regardless of the race. And it's up to us as Republicans to ensure that every citizen has the opportunity to pursue their version of the American dream. Now, some people might say, what about outreach? What about connecting with minority communities? And to them, I say this. I'm reminded of a time that myself and one of our guests tonight, uh, Colonel Croft, we visited Tim Scott in his D.C. office at a convention. And he made mention of the fact that we cannot rent the vote in the minority communities, but we must own it, which means that we have to work for it in season and out of season. So we must redouble our efforts to engage, to listen, and to understand the unique challenges that are facing those particular communities. We can't just show up every four years and expect to glean their votes. We need to be present, as I said, year-round, offering real solutions and a genuine commitment to making their lives better. And you know what? We're already seeing progress on this front. Look at the record low unemployment rates for black and Hispanic Americans under President Trump's administration. Everybody remembers that, and that's why he's so high in the polls. Look at the historic criminal justice reform bill that was passed with bipartisan support. These are real achievements that benefit all Americans, regardless of race. So, my friends, this Black History Month, let's celebrate the trailblazers, the innovators, and the heroes who have shaped our nation for the better. But let's also recommit ourselves to the principles of equality, opportunity, and justice for all. Because that's what the Republican Party stands for. And that's what will ensure a brighter future for generations to come. The Wichita School District at Monday night's USD 259 School Board of Education meeting presented a recommendation to close six schools, two middle schools and four elementary schools. The list includes Hadley Middle School and the Jardine STEM, uh, STEM and Career Exploratory Academy, the Clark Cleveland Traditional Magnet, and Payne and Park Elementary Schools. In discussing the move toward closing the schools late last month, Wichita Public Schools superintendent said that challenges facing the school district include declining enrollment, increasing costs, large building maintenance needs, and the loss of one-time federal COVID relief funds. With us right now to discuss the closings are Wichita School Board members Hazel Stabler and Diane Albert. Ladies, good evening. Thank you for joining us evening. Thank you for having us. All right. So good to see you guys. And it's my understanding that y'all took special pains to get here. So we appreciate you driving all the way in. <laughs> it's great to see you. We love the work that you do. Diane, can you walk us uh, very quickly through the reasons that the school district has been forced to even make this decision? Yeah. So overall, next year's budget will be about $42 million less than this year's current budget. And so that just means that we have to make some challenging decisions. None of these are easy and um, they all present different trade-offs. So uh, we have seen an enrollment decline since 2017. We've seen an 8.4% decline in our enrollment. And when your budget is tied to enrollment, your budget changes with that. Um, another reason for uh, the option of closing schools is we have a lot of staff vacancies. And so we want a certified teacher in all classrooms. And in order to get that, if we right-size the district and have less classrooms, we can fill those vacancies. And then we do have the facility challenges. So just to keep in mind, we have 94 schools within the Wichita 259 area. So our district is currently built for about 63,000 students, and our current enrollment 
serves about 47,000 students. So we have empty classrooms. We have space that's not being used. And this is a, a fiscally responsible a decision, an opportunity to make sure that the students are served well and our resources are not being spread too thin. It does not make this decision easy or lighthearted. Um, it's still a difficult decision, but we are trying to be fiscally responsible to respond to the needs of students in an academic way and in a responsible manner. Amen. And I, I really appreciate what you just said there, being fiscally responsible, because I know if it was hitting my pocketbook, if I had 8% of a decline on my revenue flows, that, that would, would take a hit, right? So 8%, what is that in terms of students, of headcount? So during the COVID years, we had about 2,600 students that did mm -hmm. not return after the schools were forced to shut down. Um, and that was just a right at that 2021 school year. Um, so dollar wise, I'd, I'd have to look that up again. Um, but right now we're seeing about a $20 million decrease in our budget from enrollment and then a $20 million decrease from ESSER funds. And the ESSER funds are the COVID, uh, federal funds that we received. So those, we can get into that in a little bit, but yeah. Those are the federal funds. I, I definitely understand that. I remember uh, while I was on K-12 through Education Budget Committee talking about some of these very things. Ms. Hazel, the USD 259 superintendent cited four main reasons for the closure. Declining enrollment, as we discussed, was the first reason. Did he provide any explanation for the declining enrollment itself? After COVID, like Diane said, um, we did not have 2,300 students returned, and we still we're, they still haven't returned. So it's just declining declining enrollment. And thank you for that. And I think that there were two other reasons that were uh, that were cited uh, were the increasing cost and the large building maintenance needs. But aren't those already in factored into the district's budgeting process? Didn't they see this coming? Um, we have 93 buildings, like Diane said, and we have maintenance, deferred maintenance fees of, um, I don't know, what is it? Just over a billion dollars. In deferred maintenance bill. And the average age of our buildings mm -hmm. is 60 years old. So that's the average, average age of our 93 buildings. Wow. So there, we have a lot of expense. We have historic buildings. We have buildings over 100 years old. And, and um, so, yes. That is just tremendous when you think about the impact of, you know, 60-year-old buildings across 94, 93 different buildings. Uh, just so you know, this is Pat Penn stepping in for John Whitmer here tonight on the John Whitmer Show. We're with Wichita School Board members Hazel Stabler and Diane Albert. Hey, Diane, uh, the other reason that was cited for the closure, as you discussed, was the loss of those uh, ESSER funds, the federal COVID relief funds. But those funds were one-time funds. Why didn't this school district use those one-time expenses instead of including them in their budget, which would inevitably result in that budget shortfall when those funds actually ended? Well, I believe the district did. We did spend those ESSER funds on a lot of HVAC, a lot of windows. So there were one-time use funds. Okay. The district did try to be very responsible in in how to spend that money because it was every time ESSER was brought up, it was there is an end date to when this money is going to be spent. So if this is a surprise to anybody, <laughs> we can go back and watch a lot of board meetings together to find out this was not a surprise Uh budget shortfall. So we knew this was going to happen, but we also wanted to invest heavily in our teachers and our staff, because if we have good quality teachers in our classrooms, that is going to be the greatest impact on 
seen academic increases in the performance of the students. And so we've made a decision to invest heavily in our staff. And that's why we had a two-year contract with the teachers union Mm -hmm. because the board agreed and the administration agreed that we wanted to see the first-year teachers hit that $50,000 mark as an entry first-year teacher because that was important to us to invest in those staff. Mm -hmm. So part of that COVID relief money was to invest back into our staff. Um, And because of that, we, we do just see a difference in our budget between this year and next year. I, I can definitely appreciate that, and it sounds like you're really uh, trying to take care of those that take care of you and our students in the classroom, and for that we are very appreciative. Hazel, looking at the schools that are suggested for closure out of that uh, list, some are already implying that the suggested schools are in low-income, primarily minority communities, and I'm not sure if they're trying to imply something by that, but looking at the numbers, it looks like these schools, as you said, were old, and in some cases, they were very underutilized. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, as a whole, our district is about 80% poverty, and we have many buildings that are over 90% poverty, and actually, in our district, we have seven buildings in the entire district that are under 50% poverty. So it's important to clarify that the decision-making process um, was predominantly characterized by that the assumption that it was characterized by um, targeting um, high poverty and, mm-hmm. and low-income people is false. Um, the goal, our goal, is to ensure that all students, regardless of their socioeconomic status, have access to quality education and resources that can help lift them out of poverty. So our approach isn't about singling out poverty-stricken schools or poverty children. As as I said, we have 80% poverty in the district, and the fact that these schools, some of these buildings are over 90% is not super You're right. surprising. It's, 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 not, it's not groundbreaking. No. Uh, rocket science there. So, uh, Diane, speaking of, and thank you for that, Hazel, but Diane, speaking of socioeconomic and, and, and looking out for those in the pocketbooks, nobody wants to see the schools closed. But this isn't really the fiscally responsible option, and it's certainly a better option than firing teachers and making their pockets hurt. Is that right? Yeah, like I said, these are tough decisions. And when you have to make tough decisions, there's there's no perfect solution. They're really only trade-offs. And so we're really trying to take a holistic approach for how do we best serve the academic needs of students? How do we best serve the staff that are getting us to meet those academic needs? Mm-hmm. And how do we really have a balanced approach of that? And like I said, our district is built for about 63,000 students, mm-hmm. and we serve about 47,000. So we're really trying to right-size the district to serve the size of the student population that we currently have. And by doing that, we're, we're having to make some tough decisions right now. And they're not fun. We don't, we don't, nobody's looking at this and going, yeah, these are easy decisions. Mm. The staff members that are approaching this, Mm -hmm. they've started out in the classrooms. They've got their own children within the district. Mm. There's really heartfelt decisions behind making these hard choices. So they're not met easily, but we have, we have to make tough decisions and we have to figure out the best trade-offs to serve our population well. Amen. And our and our teachers, yeah. like um, you're talking about firing teachers, we can't do that because we're already short 270 um, teachers in we're our district. We're, teachers we're, in we're short now, so to fire teachers would be, be a disservice to our students and our staffing because then it would cause more um, responsibility to teachers. They'd be overworked. 
Yeah, so if you're already having these buildings that are being underutilized, you have a shortage of students, and now you're trying to do the right sizing in a responsible fashion, your only other tough options are firing teachers, which we sound like we don't want to do, and raising taxes. Let me ask you a quick question. What's the best way for folks to get in touch with you concerning this, as well as do you have any uh, public uh, hearings coming up so that uh, the parents and everybody can have their say? Yes, we have public hearings that will start next week, and um, they will be starting February 21st at 530, and that one will be for focus. Well, they'll focus on Hadley and Park. So if you go to usd.org backslash transform24, you can see, you can get the schedule on there, but it'll be, it'll start February 21st and go through um, February 26th. Okay. With the public hearing being February 29th. And will people have to register to be heard at that, or do they just show up and you can grab the mic? Yes, you have to register in advance with the clerk of the board. Mm-hmm. And the number for that is 316 973 4553. That's for the public hearing, but for the community listening sessions, we just want people to show up. Um, but if the best place for people to go for more information is our district website at usd259.org forward slash transform 24. We have a robust FAQ section for the frequently asked questions for people that are curious. Um, they can find out the exact um Areas of how the district made the decisions, how they came to those recommendations, what data and information they used to come up with that information, and uh, just other important dates that are coming up. Um, but they're welcome. People are re- welcome to reach out to us individually. Um, but the district website is going to be the best place to find more information about this. All right. Well, I thank you for that, Hazel, Diane. You guys have been super troopers here. Thank you so much for partnering with us and the parents, and thank you for joining us this evening. And I hope that everybody supports you. Thank you. you. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So, folks, Attorney General Chris Kobach announced earlier this month that several Kansas school districts allow employees to hide from parents the fact that a student may be using a different name or pronouns at the school. In early last year, Mr. Kobach sent six letters uh, to uh, the six Kansas school districts challenging their policies that require or allow school district staff to conceal from parents a student's, quote, transgender or, quote, gender nonconforming status. In short, the policies allow schools to, quote, socially transition students without the parents' knowledge or consent. 
Joining us now to tell us why he felt the need to send those letters is the Kansas Attorney General, Mr. Chris Kobach. General, thank you for joining us this evening, sir. Great to be with you, Pat. <laughs> well, sir, parents should know and they should have an opportunity to be involved in such an important aspect of their kids' well-being. Is that your stance? Yeah, not only should they know, they have a right, a legal right to know. And uh, that's why we wrote this letter to the uh, to the six school districts. And to their credit, uh, two of the school districts, once we informed them that they're you know, I think some of the school board members may not have even known that these policies were going on under their, their noses. But uh, to their credit, uh, two of the school districts immediately rescinded the policies, restoring parental rights. And those were uh, both both in the Wichita area, uh, Mays and Belle Plaine. And but however, four districts, uh, we issued a press release to this effect this past week, four districts in northeast Kansas continue to dig their heels in and are and are not at least not yet, indicating they're going to change anything. And those are Kansas City, Shawnee Mission, Olathe, and Topeka school districts. So it's, you know, I think it's important for a number of reasons. Uh, It's important to inform these districts what the rights are of parents, which evidently they seem ignorant of, and also to let them know that they could be exposed to lawsuits uh, because the parents have a constitutional right to control the upbringing and education of their children. And that constitutional right was recognized by the United States Supreme Court in 1923, uh, more than a century ago. And uh, it's just you know, astonishing to me that these school districts think it's a good idea, let alone legal, to do that, wow. to, to conceal this stuff from the, from the parents. Absolutely. And, Mr. General, when you have school administrators that think that they know better than parents, we have a problem in America. But these school districts, they claim that they don't have to comply because, in part, there's no state law requiring them to do so. So what's up next? So, yeah, this is, this is the uh, fallacy that some of the school districts had, and this is the fallacy that uh, – Wichita Eagle columnist Dion Leffler had when he wrote this really ridiculous uh, editorial uh, a little over a week ago, uh, declaring that I should be impeached for for writing this letter to the school districts informing them what the Constitution says. And he says the reason I should be impeached is because there's no Kansas law that says that school districts can't do this. And he just you know he's not a lawyer, so he doesn't understand. But you don't have to have a Kansas statute in place. For the attorney general to act in defense of constitutional rights. And it, he just seems to think that if the legislature says the attorney general can do something, then and only then can the attorney general, you know, stand up and do something. But, of course, when it's the Constitution, that's the supreme law of the land. And the a Kansas statute, which many legislators wanted, would have told the school districts, hey, you you do you you, give, you inform parents or you lose your money or you have some other consequence. And, and the state can do that. But the fact that the Constitution stands way above the statutes of Kansas and establishes a basis for lawsuits. So basically, I'm informing these districts, hey, you're, you're violating the Constitution. Any parent, any teacher could sue and say that you're violating their constitutional rights, and you would lose in court, and you would pay attorney's fees, and you would waste your uh, patrons, your school district members' money trying to defend it. So we're simply informing them uh, that their behavior is violating the Constitution, and that is one of the duties of the attorney general and I guess Diane Leffler, uh, you know, hadn't bothered to figure that out or read any of the cases that establish this constitutional right. Well, Mr. General, I know from my run-ins with Mr. Leffler, uh, he's many things, but an attorney and a constitutional scholar, he is not. Uh, and it it just uh, it boggles the mind how he st- decides to step in on a space that he is not erudite, that he is not a leader in the thought process, and just wants to 
as usual, take shell shots at, uh, you know, those who are actually trying to defend our parents, our children, and our system. So we appreciate and applaud you because uh, I did have John send me that link to your op-ed as well as J.R. Clay's, Senator Clay's, and I want to commend you on stepping into that into that breach and uh, holding the line. It's really, really nice to have someone push back against uh, the liberal rag that is the Wichita Eagle. Uh, so well, I appreciate your to. words on that op-ed. Yes, sir. Well, you know, Norm, you know, I get I get hit all the time by liberal editorial writers across the state of Kansas mm-hmm. and and beyond. Um, and usually, I I just don't pay any attention to it. I just don't have enough time to address them all. But when when Leffler wrote his ridiculous piece, you know, claiming that the attorney general has no role here, uh, and and also claiming that believe it or not, he claimed that students have a con- constitutional privacy right. To, uh, to to withhold information from their parents, and, and there's there there are some privacy rights that uh, students student age kids enjoy, but no court has uh, has recognized a privacy right against your own parents. Exactly. <laughs> there is no such right. Exactly. Anyway, it's, he he had so many errors. I decided to go ahead and write a. Response <laughs> and, <laughs> well, it, it was was this, you, you bring up a great point, sir. You know, you have a, a right for privacy in the business uh, sector, a business sphere. You have a right to privacy when you're, uh, I, I don't know. It, it, there are so many different enumerated rights that you have in, in privacy of communications, uh, uh, attorney-client privilege, or uh, with your pastor, or pillow talk with your wife. But what you don't have is a right as a kid to keep your parents in the dark about you doing a gender trans- transition or pretty much anything else. That's kind of why you live under my roof and you abide by our rules. So. Thank and you for exactly. standing up for that. Well, it's it's a it's part of our parental rights. You know, when, when our kids <laughs> when our kids uh, leave the nest and, and turn eighteen and become adults of their own, uh, yes, they then they can have privacy rights held against us. But uh, you know, in other words, privacy rights against the parents and others. But they they do not have those rights as as children. And the Supreme Court of the United States has recognized that for more than a century that we control the upbringing of our children. Uh, we and we control the education of our children. And school districts don't like that. Some school districts don't like that. Right, because apparently, you know, with our mayoral election down here in Wichita and with Belle Plaine and Mays, uh, you know, Cedric County, Wichita area is doing some things right. So we're not going to lump them in. But what I will say is this. (laughs) You have, you know, guys like Mr. Leffler, you know, I would recommend that he go back and revisit and, uh, you know, just readdress some of his things and correct himself. But I know that he's deficient and he probably won't do that. So. I won't hold my breath. I won't hold mine either. <laughs> and just to let you know, this is still Pat Penn in for John Whitmer. We are here interviewing with Attorney General Chris Kobach, and uh, we've been having a great time. So, Mr. Attorney General, if you can stand for a little bit more questioning. Sure, absolutely. All right, fantastic. Sir, you held a press conference this week to announce your proposal to change the Kansas statute to allow for a second method of ex- execution in death penalty cases. Can you tell us about your proposal? Yeah, the proposal would uh, change our statute ever so slightly uh, so that it adds – right now the Kansas statute passed in 1994 says we may execute a capital uh, – you know, a capital murder um, defendant by lethal injection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it do, but it doesn't say any other, any, other prefer, any other acceptable method. And right now uh, lethal injection is difficult if not impossible to carry out. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer – Many of them have said they will not make their drugs available for execution, you know, be taking a woke stand against capital punishment. And European countries have said they will not allow any chemicals, uh, drugs to be used in executions to be uh, exported to the United States, uh, to states in the United States for that purpose. 
And so it's extremely difficult. Some states are having to postpone executions because they cannot get the drugs. And on top of that, the 1994 Kansas statute doesn't specify how a final uh, order of execution is to be uh, issued by the courts. So our statute simply makes it possible for us to carry out the death sentence. Right now, we've if, if suddenly all of the appeals ended mm-hmm. uh, in one of the nine cases on death row, uh, we wouldn't be able to carry out the, the death penalty because we don't have the tools to do it. And so this statute, or the, the bill that I have proposed would add nitrogen hypoxia, which is kind of the new best method, uh, considered painless, uh, considered probably the, the state of the art of, of the best way to do executions. Um, Alabama had the first one of those executions a couple weeks ago. Uh, there are three states that have already moved to nitrogen hypoxia, um, Kansas, Ohio, uh, and a third, Nebraska are considering moving to that this year. Um, so it uh, just simply makes it possible for us to carry out our execution. You know, we had a press conference. We had some of the families that have been, you know, just ripped apart by the violence done against their loved ones, mm-hmm. and they have waited, in some cases, over 20 years mm-hmm. since the conviction to have the death penalty carried out. And the waiting is a form of torture, too, because they, they go to all these appeals. They, they're constantly in touch with the attorneys. There's no finality. And I don't want to make those families wait another two years or more when the time comes. And we've got a couple of cases where the time may come where all the appeals are done. And those cases are right around the corner. One could be ready as early as nine months from now. And, you know, this is just a a simple question to me. If we're going to tell the people of Kansas that we have the death penalty, which we do, we're not being honest with the people of Kansas if we can't actually carry it out. And that's what this bill would do is enable us to actually carry it out. Amen. And, Mr. General, just speaking of that, you said that there are a number of cases that we have out there that have been sitting around for 20 years or more, and that's a form of torture, if you will, for the family members to have to continue to go in and revisit that pain and reopen the wound and still not get any justice or satisfaction uh, to actually be actualized. How much does it cost the taxpayers for that 20 years uh, sitting on? Well, it, it, it does cost them um, for the long appeals and the extended stay that these individuals make on death row and they're getting their three square meals and that's a taxpayer expense. And, you know, when the time comes, and as I say, there are a couple of cases where it could be very soon in under a year in one case. Um, We don't need to prolong it further because Kansas hasn't gotten ready yet. And that's really what this bill I've proposed does. It just gets us ready so that we can actually carry out the death penalty. You know, we haven't carried out a death penalty in Kansas since 1965. Believe it or not. So we're talking almost 50 years here or actually over 50 years, almost 60 years. And the, uh, you know, it, it, the, the Supreme Court of the United States back in 1972 mm-hmm. put a hold on all U.S. death penalties. And then in 1976, they said, OK, you can states, you can do the death penalty if you do it this way. And you have a two phase um, trial where you have a guilt phase and then you have a penalty phase and you consider mitigating factors and all of this. So the states, uh, the majority of the states, you know, put their death penalties back on the books, and many of our neighboring states have been carrying it out since then. But we in Kansas still haven't, and now finally, uh, at long last, we are approaching the end of the tunnel where we may be able to carry out the execution. But if we don't change our laws and, and update them a little bit, we won't be able to actually do it. And what kind of pushback, where, what sectors are you getting pushback from? I know there's probably those uh, justice advocates that come in and, and want to talk about the uh the death penalty being meted out uh, without uh, proper 
you know, different types of uh, ability to, to know exactly who did what or that they're going to get overturned on appeals and things of that nature. Is that a, a concern? Well, the, the main pushback that we received uh, in the committee hearing this past week uh, was from people who just are opposed to the death penalty, period. Mm-hmm. And they, they couched their testimony in, well, we're opposed to nitrogen hypoxia because we think that's really cruel. And then one of the committee members, actually it was Steve Owens, he said, uh, well, if, if that's the case, then help me here. We have a death penalty in Kansas. Which method is humane? And he asked this to a lawyer who was opposed to the, to the bill. And she kind of stammered and and tried to give answers that didn't answer the question. And he, you know, eventually became almost, you know, laughably clear that there is no answer. They, the death penalty opponents say no method is humane, but but hypoxia is the most painless, um, I would say, you know, best method that we know of now. And in fact, if you look at, and I don't go to these websites, but if you look at the websites or the articles written by you know, people who are advocates of suicide or assisted suicide, they all advocate uh, hypoxia, uh, and they actually uh, prefer helium hypoxia as the most painless way uh, to die. So if they if they're saying this is painless, I think it's probably painless. All right. Well, I tell you what, Mr. General, we want to thank you for joining us. I did want to ask you one quick question in about 10 seconds. Can you address the uh, your victory at the Supreme Court for overturning the Gannon decisions or pulling out of that? And what does that bode for the future of Kansas? Well, you know, sorry, I, I didn't hear you. The which decision? Uh, Gannon decisions on the Supreme Court. Oh, the Gannon decision, yes. Uh, yeah, the, U, the, the Kansas Supreme Court, yes. So that basically ends the case. And that okay. allows, if there's ever a challenge, it's a completely new case. And it allows all seven justices all right. to participate. Well, we got to roll. But I tell you what, if you want to get in touch with you, Mr. General, when, where can they contact you? At Chris at Kobach at 1787. Is that correct on Twitter? On Twitter, and then the official website is uh, ag.ks.gov. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. This is kind of interesting coming up here now on our next guest. The U.S. Border Patrol had nearly 250,000 encounters with migrants crossing into the United States from Mexico in December of 2023, according to the government statistics. That was the highest monthly total on record, and encounters at the southwest border in 2023 have increased over 40 percent since 2021. And even more alarming, since President Biden took office, did he ever take office? There have been over 7.5 million encounters nationwide. With us now to discuss Biden's border crisis is Chris T. Clem. He is the former chief patrol agent of the U.S. Border Patrol in Yuma, Arizona. He retired in 2022 after serving more than 27 years with the U.S. Border Patrol. Known for his matter-of-fact and honest approach, Chief Clem served in multiple locations throughout his career and in key leadership positions across the southern border and in Washington, D.C. He has been on the front line in the border crisis in both El Paso, Texas, and most recently, Yuma, Arizona. Chief Clem, thank you for joining us this evening, sir. Hey, good evening. Glad to be on and uh, always uh, ready to talk about the facts and tackle the border. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's such an important issue. It's impacting everybody. Absolutely, sir. I did 20 in the in the Army myself, retired out of uh, Fort Hood, Texas, and I know uh, how important it is for us to have national security. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service uh, and that of your team and your family for loaning us all of your expertise over the years. Thank you, Chief. 
Yeah, and I extend the same to you. Thank you. Cool, sir. So, Chief, there have been 1.7 million known illegal gotaways who have crossed over the southern border since Joe Biden took office, yet the president and his administration continue to claim that the border is closed. You serve close to, I think, 28 years with the Border Patrol. Do you think that the U.S. border is closed? Well, I would say uh, you tell me, uh, uh, give me a time and location, and I'll tell you if it's uh, if it's secure or closed at that particular point in time, because the border is dynamic, the border is fluid. But with uh, close to a million arrests already this fiscal year, with uh, over one and a half million gotaways the last few years, yeah, I- I'm saying it's uh, not as secure as it used to be, and it's certainly not uh, not as closed as some would like uh, like us to uh, to believe. Absolutely. So, you know, we have uh, Mayorkas finally impeached and you use the words uh, that it was uh, fluid and dynamic. I would add porous on there. Have you ever seen it as bad as it is now, sir? No, I haven't. And and, and, and it's great that you were talking about this because, uh, look, the uh, you know, in law enforcement, there's nothing simple about it. You're dealing with uh, threats uh, in, in our situation. You don't know who the threat is until after you've encountered them or you've you know, taking their biometrics. And uh, and oftentimes we don't even know who that is because there's no data in the databases that we check. And so those million and a half or 1.7 million gotaways are very, very uh, important uh, uh, to our security. And when we are overwhelmed because of poor policies by this administration, people are just turning themselves in. It is hamstringing the Border Patrol from doing their job. And uh, and that's where those gotaways uh, are, are happening. And and for your listeners, understand a gotaway is somebody that we have determined that have made the entry. We, we've either seen them on camera, we've tracked them, uh, we've had the sensors go off, but we could never resolve it. So we have no idea who they are, what their intentions were, and where they're heading to. And that right there, you know, is why we say without border security. Every town's a border town. Every state's a border state. And you're seeing that play out in real time over the last year or so with this administration. Absolutely, Chief Clem. I think that if you have a a door on your house and you have it on its hinges, this is basically the president, his administration, his party. They have taken the door off of his hinges and they're down somewhere inside the master bathroom obsessing about are we going to use periwinkle blue shampoo or rose petal red shampoo Meanwhile, uh, you know, the entire uh, apparatus that we have is in the cone of silence on the front door and people have no understanding and no fierce sense of urgency, if you will, about who in the world it is that's coming into the house and running through the fridge. So I see in a recent survey that showed that as many as 25 percent of uh, the Border Patrol and ICE officers are considering to leave their jobs. Is that a new phenomenon? How's morale down there? Morale was it was bad. You know, you're having a, an uptick of people that are uh, retiring before they're uh, mandatory. You know, for federal law enforcement, it's set up for uh, at the age of 50. If you have 20 years or more at the age of 50, you're eligible for a uh, for retirement or any time with 25 years or more. So somebody like me had 27 years and I'd reached over the age of 50. I was well within my ability to retire. I still had, you know, um, five more years to go if I wanted to, but I, uh, I had, I had put in my time. I, I saw that there was, uh, there was nothing, uh, nothing was going to change in this administration and, and it was the right thing for me to do. But the, the profession has taken a hit uh, and border patrol has not been exempt from that. In fact, it's been victimized by this administration as bad as anybody else. 
And so the morale does uh, does take a big hit. Uh, we are a resilient group of people. We uh, traditionally ride to the sound of gunfire, but when you're when you're basically you know relegated to uh, processing and and facilitating the the quick release of migrants, it's very challenging to get out there and do the job that they you know number one swore to do and number two expect to do by the American people. But uh, we've just been, you know, uh, hamstringed by this uh, administration. One, one real quick point too. I want to. You, you were kind of uh, speaking my language with the front door of the house. <laughs> Look, we live in, in in societies where we have locks on our front doors, and all we're saying is let's put a lock on the front door of this country, and 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 then and to know who comes in our front door based on what is in the best interest of this country. And and not have people come around and sneak in the back door and jump through our backyard and steal our stuff. And that's 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 what's amazing to me is that we could say, hey, we want to lock on our front door and determine who comes in. It becomes divisive and vitriolic, and you know, presents false choices. You're either pro border security, that means you're automatically anti-immigrant, or if you're anti-immigrant and you're you're or you're for immigrants and you're anti-border security. No, it shouldn't be that way. There's there's a sweet spot, but it starts with border security. Amen. And Chief Clem, I tell you, the, the same people who are so adamant about not knowing what a man and a woman is and what their body parts are want to make some declarative statements about what, whether or not you are for or against immigration. Listen, if my grandma is having a birthday party for her 80th birthday and I'm looking through the peephole to see who's coming into the party, I don't want anybody crashing the party. I want the opportunity to keep the door on, look through the peephole and say, yes, you're on the guest list. Come on in. That's how it works. We're not against immigration. We're against illegal uh, migration that is overwhelming our system. And this Black History Month, the black community is finally figuring it out that these same folks that are coming over are now uh, competing with them for resources inside the community, schools, uh, housing, uh, jobs, uh, a whole host of things, and that they are losing out big time uh, to the policies of Joe Biden and his Democrat cohort uh, that just don't like America. So it is really disconcerting to us, uh, but God bless you for sticking into the fight. Ladies and gentlemen, again, this is Representative Pat Penn on for John tonight. I have Chris T. Clem, a 25-year veteran of the U.S. Border Patrol. Chief Clem, real quick, uh, what needs to change, if anything, and can Congress, can they do anything to stop this? So what needs to change is the is the direction and leadership in the White House, right? That's the obvious one because we had, uh, you know, I, I did, uh, I worked for five presidents. I came in under Clinton. Wow. Every administration had had made a difference, right? We were leaning forward each each administration. Obviously, you know, after nine eleven, uh, Bush did a lot of things for the border. President Obama built more wall than any president prior to him, and and he deported more people than in, uh, any other president before him. And then when Trump came in, he he took it to the next level, was going to finish the deal, and and then all of a sudden under this administration, which campaigned on reverse and everything, did it within the first uh, few hours and first few days. And so what we need to do is we need to go back to number one, securing the border. Number two, put the policies in place that were working. You know, uh, you know they they weren't perfect, but they were effective because I mean, let the audience know that in 2019 our numbers were just over 900,000 arrests. In 2020, it dropped to just over 400,000. But the first full year under President Biden, it went up to 1.6 million, and then in 2022, it went up to 2.2 million, and then we ended 24 close to 2.4 million. So those are those are all policies directed out of the White House. So when they want to blame Congress, they they got to start by blaming the person in the White House and the Secretary's office. Yes, Congress can pass some laws that you know kind of uh, codify and solidify. What needs to happen and appropriate 
uh, and line item for security, for detention. But this giving too much latitude to the bureaucracy is what's caused this problem because they've yeah. reversed all the policies, and, and here we are. And the numbers don't lie. I mean we can get emotional and angry about things, but those numbers are factual. You can look them up and vet them against the, 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 the CBP website. And that is policy driven. I agree that, with you. Marcus will sit there and talk about it's the Congress's fault. But one more thing on that, and I'll be quiet, is that Secretary Marcus was the director of USCIS, Citizenship and Immigration Services, That's from right. 2009 to 2012. Excuse me, 2009 yeah, to 12. Then from 12 to 16, he was the deputy secretary of Homeland Security. And then for the last three years, he's been the secretary of Homeland Security. So he has had, what is that, eight in 11, 11 years, he's been directly or indirectly in charge of our immigration system, and he wants to blame Congress? Come on. Hey, let yeah. me quote the president. Come on, man. Yeah. There you go. Good, <laughs> good quote right there. And speaking of uh, the president and their quotes and stuff, Chief, if, uh, thank you for your service. But if people want to get in contact with you and give you a poll, a, a quick ranking poll, determining whether or not they support uh, you know, taking care of Ukraine's border versus America's border, how can they get in contact with you? Well, at my at C Clem official is the best place to find me on the on the X. Sounds like it. Twitter and that, that, that's where you can find me and they can send something direct message. We can figure all that out. But, yeah, you know what? I'm all about supporting our allies around the world. But charity starts at home. We, we've got no. we've got a border security problem with things all over the world. Now, more than ever, we need to secure this border. Look, and, and, and you're a veteran. Yes, if sir. we have homeless veterans, homeless children, hungry veterans, hungry. Children, we've got a mental health crisis, but we are spending way too much money taking care of other things, and when we've got a problem right here at home. And so I think there's money that can be better served, securing our borders, taking care of here in America. Then we will also support our allies. But, but we, we've got to do some things right now at the border because it's, it's a dangerous situation going on around Amen. the world. Amen. Well, Chief Clem, I want to thank you for joining us this evening. I think the, uh, the listening audience will agree. Thank you so very much. It was awesome being on here. Appreciate the opportunity and look forward to a, 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 another conversation down the road. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is stepping up his strategy to get on the battleground ballots as he flirts with the idea of running on the Libertarian Party ticket, raising alarm bells for Democrats who fear that he will dent President Biden's reelection prospects. Kennedy's consideration of another party uh, switch comes as he faces significant scrutiny over whether he will be able to qualify for enough ballots nationwide as an independent heading into the general election. Joining us now is Mr. Drew Allen, representing American Values 2024, the RFK Jr. Super PAC. Drew, thank you for joining us this evening. Hey, good to be with you. Wild times we're living in. Hey, seriously, wild times. Love that ad coming in right there. I know you guys took a little heat. Hey, the American Values uh, 2024 Super PAC supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential candidacy is pursuing ballot access in pivotal states independent of the campaign. The targeted states include Arizona, California, Colorado, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Nevada, New York, and Texas. Did I miss any? These 10 states represent approximately half of the required signatures nationwide. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, exactly. I mean, it's absolutely vital, you know, if, if, if you know, for RFK Jr. to really have uh, a shot at the ballot. I mean, you know, he's got to be on the ballot to begin with. So that's kind of what, 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 what he's looking at. Nothing against. It's a, it's a beast for sure. And you know, it's just you've got strange bedfellows today. To be honest, I mean, if you look, if if you want to talk about, you know, RFK Jr. running now as an independent, uh, doesn't really feel at home in the Democrat Party. 
and he's even talking to libertarians about having access through 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 their party. So it's it's really <laughs> it's bizarre in America today, to say the least. Yeah, sounds like it. AV24 is expecting uh, Drew to spend sometime somewhere between 10 million and 15 million dollars to tackle the task in these 10 states uh, in order to spread democracy. Funny thing, right? With the legal expertise to analyze each state's requirements, processes and implementation. What do you have to say about that one? Well, look, I mean, <laughs> every every campaign you look at, you know, especially in particular the Democrat Party today, uh, you know, you can look what they're doing with Trump with lawfare. I mean, really, it's a, it's kind of a sad reality that, you know, so much of our so-called democracy and, of course, we're a republic, not a, a democracy, as they always say, you know, depends upon, you know, it, it comes down to courts a lot of times and rules and regulations and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, that that again, I don't I mean, you know, it's necessary, but, you know, I think it's it's unfortunate. I mean, you talk about money and politics. It's still all about money. Yeah, hey, I hear you that. Now, let's say that you do get him on the ballot in those states. Drew, do you think he can actually win? Look, I mean, I think that RFK Jr., you know, it's still early in terms of this year. I, I don't know realistically, you know, what the odds are at this point. Um, you know, if we can get him on the ballot, look, there are a lot of people uh, out there that are disillusioned Democrats that have come around just like RFK Jr. Uh, there's even some folks who are tired of Trump. And, uh, and, you know, and they're looking for, for another candidate. So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, uh, you know, he's got a strong message. And, uh, you know, certainly when it comes to the, you know, COVID-19 and lockdowns and a lot of these issues that are important to people, uh, he, he is the, the greatest champion of those particular issues. Yes, sir. Well, as you came on the air, Drew, we, uh, we had played that audio clip from your recent Kennedy Super Bowl ad. And what's been the response to the commercial? Well, the response from anybody is it's great unless you're, you know, the yeah. Democrat Party that that hates RFK <laughs> Jr. I mean, I, I mean, the, the idea that oh yeah, you know, he would the, the the older Kennedys, you know, that have all been murdered, uh, you know, that they, they would have something bad to say about RFK Jr. today, you know, playing off of those old ads. Give me a break. I mean, the Democrat Party's unrecognizable uh, from that party anyway. I mean, these these Democrats have nothing in common with uh, the former Kennedys or JFK. I mean. These people are Marxists, so there's no. I mean, it's a joke. These people are a joke. Man, <laughs> whoa, ladies and gentlemen, this is Pat Penn, representative from House 85, standing in for John Whitmer tonight. I have on the line Mr. Drew Allen, representing Americans Value 2024, the RFK Jr. Uh, Super PAC. He is literally doing nothing but spitting facts. This is amazing. So, Drew, CNN, that was just amazing right there. I tell you what, the black community completely agrees with you. They didn't leave the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party of the socialist Marxists left them. So CNN recently reported that the Democrat Party has ramped up its attacks on your campaign, on the Kennedy campaign in recent days, marking the first significant attempt by either party to shape voter sentiment around his candidacy. So you must be doing something right, yeah? Well, that's right. I mean, look, many in the Democrat Party have long feared what they call, you know, the, the, the black flight. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's one of those uh, myths that has uh, finally been, I think, broken through with a lot of people in the black community. Uh, I mean, I think you have to ask the question, you know, after being so, you know, after being married to the Democrat Party for so long, I mean, what, what, what is the, you know, black community? Because that's what the Democrat Party does anyway. They play identity politics. What has the black community gotten out of it? Are they better off for supporting Democrats? And I think that people are waking up to the fact that, that, that they're not, objectively even. 
Amen to that. A, a recent Quinnipiac uh, University survey shows uh, RFK Jr. with 22 percent support in a hypothetical three way race against President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. Where do you think those votes are coming from, Republicans or Democrats? Uh, I, I think that's more coming from the Democrat side, uh, to be honest. Um, I think there's a handful of people out there on the on the kind of conservative wing of things that are really, really still set up and looking for accountability with Fauci and, and what happened with lockdowns. And that's where we've seen the support coming uh, on the right. On the left, it's, it's just sane people who are waking up and they're realizing that what the doing it's it's ruining america and it's it's the greatest threat we face so um you know it's it's certainly a little bit easier for some of those folks i think to jump over and and, and feel okay uh junior instead of um you know trump for example but look i mean there's a lot of similar messaging between trump and rfk jr uh there are a lot of similarities there and if you notice there's not a lot of uh hatred and and fighting amongst those two so i think when it comes down to intention I think that, you know, you've got a couple of options there with Trump and RFK Jr., and uh, at least their heads are screwed on straight in terms of uh, actually loving America. I mean, that's the real thing with the Democrat Party today. You can't even argue that they like the country. They hate the country. Yeah. And, Tony, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Drew, that that is fantastic. I tell you what, uh, I would definitely uh, agree with your sentiments. If folks want to get more information about American Values 2024 or the Kennedy uh, campaign, what can they visit? Is AV24? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So, yes, I want to thank you, Mr. Drew Allen. You always have a place here to come in and spit facts and be reasonable because the journey is just as important as the destination in politics. Thank you again for joining us, my friend. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Amen. Thank you. Have a good one. Yes, sir. This week marks the sixth week of the legislative session. And this week we have House Majority Leader Chris Croft uh, coming on with us to give us a legislative update from under the dome. Colonel Croft, how do you do? Uh, is, is Chris with us? Yeah, can you hear me? Hey, there you are. Hey, sir, how you doing? Okay. Good. Yourself? I'm pretty well. Thank you for joining us here tonight. Just wanted to uh, get a quick update of what's been going on under the dome. I think we're in the sixth sixth week. Can you tell the listening audience uh, what that was so special about that piece? Well, uh, yeah, this is the week where uh, we get to Monday and Tuesday. It's the last days of committees uh, getting their initial cut on bills. And then on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday is when we will hear everything that's kind of stacked up as we've gone through this process and, we have currently about 100 bills underneath the line and uh, spent the whole weekend working with the team, prioritizing and making sure uh, which way we're going to go through these bills over the next, uh, like I said, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. That's right. Now, this week, we actually did a few things that were uh, pretty momentous for us. We in the House, we passed Bain's law, the Police Dog Protection Act. Uh, we had yep. a budget. The budget committees, they continued all their work. Uh, but the right. governor's recommendation was to increase the budget by an unnecessary one point <laughs> three billion dollars or 13 percent. I believe we wanted to talk about uh, increasing Medicaid reimbursement rates for providers. I know there's been some some hubbub about that, as well as an age verification bill for adult websites. Uh, I introduced a bill over in the House side. I think we had one pass the Senate, the Senate. And I just want you to if you want to ping in on any of those right there. Yeah, actually, you're doing a great job. You keep it up. Uh, no, so you're right about the budget, and we, um, 
you know, this year we started talking about the budget even earlier than we, we normally do. Uh, wanted to get out there and show where we're at because the governor's budget was so out of bounds. I mean, yeah. one over, you know, a 13 percent increase and, and most of that stuff was hidden. And if you go back and look at, you know, the numbers since she's been in the office, uh, we've increased, you know, almost $10 billion in expenditures. It's it's a crazy amount of money that, that's going on. So I'm excited the fact that, you know, we're starting to flex that muscle and starting to um, learn how to use what we've got to be able to protect the people of Kansas and go through this process. So I'm I'm um, I'm really looking forward to what the budget committee is coming out with, with uh, Chairman uh, Waymaster leading the charge on all of this. And uh, and leadership giving them the direction, you know, with the, the speaker and those guys working so hard behind the scenes. I'm really um, I'm I'm very excited about the, where we're going with the budget this year and what we're trying to get done uh, for the people of Kansas. Uh, you mentioned many of the bills, you know, getting out there and protecting, uh, you know, the, the the police dogs and other things like that. You know, we did a resolution on Texas. Um, and, you know, a lot of people focus on the fact that we're trying to reinforce the border. The fact of the matter is we're out there trying to say, listen, we support Texas. We support the process. But also don't forget that we're defending at home. You, you know, being a former military guy, us together, we've talked about this. Yes, sir. You know, defense in depth. We can't just assume that the border is the last defense mechanism. We've done a lot in the state of Kansas. Uh, and we will continue to do that. And we've got the right guy in the job with Tony Batiti. We've got the right team that's there kind of looking through things. He's asked us for some specific stuff, and we've included in our budget because we think it's important uh, to defend against you know, this invasion of our country and, and the infiltration of our system, and it's going to cause us to do a lot of things at our state level. Absolutely. And then when we talk about you know going back to the governor's budget, that 1.3 or 13%, 1.3 billion or 13%, that's all new spending. That's new money that she wants to spend, and it's not her right. money. It's the taxpayer's money. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And so what she's also trying to do is she says, well, look, there's still this federal money that floats out there. and We're just doing one-time expenditures and walking it out. What's not really seen is what she does is it's a one-time expenditure this year, and then it goes, oh, well, next year – now it's a now it's a government program. We need to have a, a you know a, a logistics tail, if you will, for this thing. And so it now has a a uh, money line for a long ways out. And that's the problem here is it just continue to grow government. I mean, look under her watch, the government has gone from number five in the country per capita to number two. And it just make sure we got the reference right. Number one is bad. So that's the worst in the country, right? Being number one in this category is not good. Amen. Um, and when, so when, when you're dealing this with this, what, when you're dealing with Laura yeah, Kelly, right. she always has caviar taste with fish stick budget, and she loves to make long money plans with other people's money. Well, I think here's the but here's the thing, and you and I have talked about this before. The difference is they believe in the government should be strong and that they should control the people, and we believe in individual freedom. That's the difference. Their freedom is we should be free of our money, free of worry. They'll take care of all of the force because the government's so good at it. And for us, we believe in individuals are the best determiner, and the individuals should have their freedoms. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, just to remind you, this is Rep. Pat Penn on with the House Majority Leader of the Kansas House, Mr. Chris Croft. Now, Colonel Croft, we were talking about the age verification bill. We wanted to make sure that adult material stays before adult persons and not to our kids. We want to protect them. Uh, but then going into next week, that's what we call the turnaround piece. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So b bottom line is these are all the bills that we need to run from our House side 
and send over to the Senate. The Senate's doing the same thing. They're going to send us bills. So that's the turnaround. Now we focus on their bills that they send us. They focus on the bills we send to them. That doesn't mean we don't have things that we are still working on. Uh, specifically for us, one of the things that you know I've been working deep in on this is uh, is the foreign adversary aspect and the land component of that, as well as some other aspects as we go forward, talking about mineral rights, water rights, air rights. So we're doing many of those things right now. Those will not be done right now. They will be done right after turnaround when we have a little bit of time to focus on them and make sure we do them right. Uh, the Senate already has their version. We have our version, and we'll just meet in the middle on that one. But that's basically what turnaround does. Now, this week specifically, though, is our last week that we can address the tax override, and we're going to address that this week. And I believe you know, we, we have the votes. We're ready to go. We're excited. We're going to get everybody in there, and uh, we're going to move forward with that. So that is one of the big things that we're going to kick the week off with uh, at some point in this week. Amen. And thank you for bringing that up, Mr. Leader. Um, when you're talking about that override of the governor's veto of the very important, very helpful tax bill, uh, what do you think of the chances of that making it out of the House, out of the Senate? What do you see happening right there? And uh, well, what, I should, mean, what, what should voters yeah. be doing to engage the process? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great point. Um, so last time we had 81, we had three people out, um, and those three votes would have put us right at the 84 that we needed. Um, believe that we're there. The governor, obviously, she's working hard with her team to think she can flip some votes, and we're working hard to keep our votes. Um, that's kind of the way this thing's going and making sure we, we share all the information and address any concerns. I feel pretty confident where we're at, but never am I going to sit here and sit back and go, we got this. Every day we're going to work hard and keep making sure that, that our team is our team and we're working together uh, to get things accomplished. So that's where I feel about that vote and where we're going. And then uh, can you divulge what day you might be doing that, or is that one of those uh, G14 classified? Well, I mean, the hard part is, as you know already, we've, you know, the first time we had, you know, we had somebody that was out sick and, and they couldn't come in. And knowing this person, they couldn't come in. Um, it wasn't just because I don't want to be, it's because they couldn't come in. And and we respect that. Then the last couple of times we've had it where we've had a death in the family and, you know, we're all about taking care of family first and Amen. taking care of the people. The rest of this stuff will work its way out. That's the way it does. So this week obviously is our last week and we are going to shoot for day one, which for us, well, that would be cut Tuesday, but could be Wednesday, Thursday or Friday. Either one of the days uh, that we get everybody there um, with with all the stuff that's going on. Well, you know, we will run through a brick wall for you real quick. Um, when we're talking about all the different things that could to, that could uh, come to bear, what do you see happening on the Senate side? Or, or have you heard of those discussions? I know the leadership, you handle 85 Republicans over in the House. What are you hearing this happening on the Senate side? And should uh, our listeners tonight be doing anything to help influence that? Yeah, thanks. And you actually brought that up again. So I appreciate that because I, I kind of didn't cover that. Um you know, the Senate's got to fight, and, and they know that. They had a fight before. They were short one vote, and they needed to get that vote, and, and I know the leadership over there has been working hard. Here's what I would ask. I would ask each one of you out, that are listening out there to send a note to your representative, send notes to people that, that uh, did not vote for it or that did vote for it. Reassure them that you have their back, that you're there to support them, and I would ask you, even if they voted no, but do it in a positive manner. Don't, you don't have to be negative because I guarantee you if you send it negative – they probably won't read it. But send them a note, a positive note, say, hey, look, really wish you could be there, and, uh, and, and here's why we want you to be there. This is what we need. We need a tax break. We need a pay raise with all the stuff going on out there, 
I mean, the people are hurting. You've been out there. You've been to the grocery stores. People don't have full carts anymore. They're price shopping now instead of quality shopping. They're going after the least uh, amount so they can put the most on their tables. These are the things that we've got to make sure. You know, when we talk about the local budgets and everything else, they're, they're experiencing in our own budget. We're experiencing inflation, but so are the people. So they're paying double. They're paying the inflation to the government, and they're pay, paying inflation at the uh, in the grocery store. We've got to make sure we understand that and try to reduce that cap- that requirement from us on them. So it's important that we pay attention to our budget as well as our taxes and try to get money back to the people. Um, so again. I would just encourage you to send notes out there in a positive manner to everybody and just say – and make them part, individual notes. Hey, listen, Senator so-and-so or House uh, Representative so-and-so, thank you. Or, hey, we really wish you could be on our team for this one. That's what I would advise. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from the best majority leader of the Kansas House, Mr. Chris Croft. He told you you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Sir, if folks want to connect with you, they can find you on Twitter at, at Chris Croft. I'm sorry, at Croft for Kansas. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Mr. Leader, thank you so much for joining us this, uh, this evening. I'll be seeing you tomorrow, sir. Yeah, thank you. And, hey, you know, when you mentioned earlier about uh, Senator Scott, I gonna tell you what, you are absolutely right. And, and I believe, you know, led by you, you're doing a great job out there working hard to earn the votes and keep up the great work. Well, sir, thank you so very much for all of your service, and uh, thank your family again for letting you come on here tonight, man. <laughs> all right. Talk you guys to you have soon. a great night. See y'all. All right, bro. Now, tonight we are being joined by Register of Deeds for Sedgwick County, Miss Tanya Buckingham. Hello. Hey, Tanya. Is it on? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Pat. <laughs> Nice to be here. <laughs> All right, fantastic. It's so good to have you in here uh, this evening. So can you tell us a little bit, Tanya, about yourself and uh, what you do over here? Okay, a little bit about me is I was born in Alabama and raised in a very small town, oh, probably about 4,000 people, and I uh, grew up with three brothers, and we believed in four very important things, our faith, our family, our friends and football. <laughs> that and pretty football. much sums it up. There so. it is, right there. Well, I've known you to be a very dear friend. Uh, people, audience, you might not know this. Uh, Tanya was the one to get me my start in politics. As a matter of fact, uh, many, many moons ago, she was pushing the stroller in a political par- parade and uh, took care of the family and just <laughs> embraced us with warm and loving arms. And that's what we're talking about at the beginning of uh, at the top of our show at the monologue about the GOP and how welcoming it is. Roll out the red carpet, open up the welcoming arms. Mm-hmm. You wanted to talk to us tonight about some of the work that you're doing mm-hmm. dealing with residents and their property being safeguarded. Can you talk to us about that with the Property Activity Alert? Uh, yes, we have a free service that helps alert people of activity that's on their property. Mm-hmm. It'll notify you by an email. So if anything is filed like under Pat pin mm-hmm. you would get an email saying hey there's a there's some kind of activity that's happening on your property and in that email it'll give you our email website link and it'll give you the document number and you can actually go on there and you can see what is happening with your property so you mean like um and, and many times we talk about a solution in search of a problem but there are real problems out there like a lien being placed on somebody's property yes so- we have seen that in the past. It doesn't happen that often, but this is just kind of like an insurance for someone to feel secure knowing that, hey, if something gets filed on my property, 
then I'll get a notification. And it's it's a free online subscription, and it's simple to sign up. You just go to CedricCounty.org and go to the Register Deeds page, and there's a link right there to sign up. And it's very, very simple. You just put your name in and your email. And for those that don't have an email account, maybe your grandmother mm-hmm. doesn't, right. you can put your email in, and that way you can look out for your family member. And that will send the alert over to you if there's someone out there trying to do some type of identity theft and things of that nature. So it's really yes. good to have that extra measure of security right. and, and that, that peace of mind oh, yeah. around some of those that are affected in our community. Now, when you were talking about uh, some of the other things you do at the Register of D's office, mm-hmm. what else you got for us? I know that there's, uh, as a military member, you take care of us as well. Talk to me. Uh, yes, we also like to remind the public that veterans can record their military discharge or their DD-214 form for free. And once that form is on file in our office, you can obtain free certified copies whenever the need arises. And those certified copies, they're as good as the original once it's filed, and they'll always be available in the event that the original is lost or or destroyed. So that's a very important document. That's huge. Uh, DD-214 opens up the doors for so many different things of the yeah. benefits process for uh, vets and their families. So that's huge to have. Uh, and the discount program is awesome as well. Yeah. yeah. Have you been getting many takers? Yes, we have. So we started the military uh, discount card program a couple of years ago. We saw it. Uh, this program was uh, done in another county in uh, Chicago, and we contacted them to find out about it. But Pretty much what it is is businesses will offer discounts to veterans. And instead of the veteran going around with their DD-214 folded up in their wallet, they can carry around this. It's a government-issued photo ID. And also, because it is a government-issued photo ID, that ID can be used when they go to vote. They can use it to go vote. Also, when they go get a tag at the tag office, Mm -hmm. they can show that discount card instead of having to carry around their DD-214. Awesome. And then uh, I know there were a lot of people who were saying that, you know, if Trump was ever elected or if he's ever reelected, they're going to move out of the country. They might need a passport. Do you have some services that do? Yes, passports? we do. We also do passports. <laughs> uh, we in August of 2023, <laughs> August of 2023. I ain't uh, moving. <laughs> I'm not either. Okay, then. So August of 2023, we opened up a full-service satellite office in the East Kellogg TAG office. Cool. It's right across from the VA, and that's where we do our uh, passport services. Excellent. So we get, a, we get a lot of people coming in for their passports there since we moved to that location. Outstanding. Yes. And I know I've visited with your team. Everybody down there is awesome. So that hat that you wear is the Register of Deeds for Cedric County. Yes. You were up for re-election. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'm up. Okay. Yes. Uh, and then, ladies and gentlemen, just to let you know, once again, this is Pat Penn, State Rep House 85, and I'm interviewing Miss Tanya Buckingham, the Cedric County Register of Deeds. Uh, and we know some of the great things that you've been doing in the community to help us out and take care of Cedric County when it comes to uh, your office and the great team that you lead there. They're a credit to you because everyone is so professional, so on point. Uh, one of the other hats that you wear, are you still involved with the Cedric County Republican Party? Uh, yes, I am. I am the Cedric County uh, Republican Party treasurer. So that is an important role, of course. I handle all the money for the county party. <laughs> uh, did y'all hear that? She handles all the money. So the, there we are. We, yeah. we, put, we put the best in charge of the, of the yeah. coffers, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I heard there was a guy at the state level who might need some help. You want, uh, you want to help him out? 
no, I'll stick to my lane. You're staying in your lane? Okay, all right, all right. Big fish, little pond right there, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. So I, full disclosure, I'm the vice chair of the Cedric County GOP, so I work hand-in-hand with Tanya, and she's yeah. always a treat to work with, just uh, amazingly on point for every single thing that she does. Books are balanced. Uh, everything's accounted for down to the penny. Yes. So uh, we, we trust and verify every single thing that she does, and she's squared away. Uh, can you talk to us about your reelection? Where can people reach out to get in touch with you if they wanted to help donate or, or, or uh, help volunteer? Yes. Uh, I have a website, and all you need to do is go to TanyaBuckingham.com. First, last name, dot com. Okay. Tanya Buckingham. How do they spell Tanya? T-O-N-Y-A. Okay. The only way. And Bucking. Oh, that's the only. <laughs> Where did you say that? So, Alabama. So sassy. Lord have mercy. You got that right. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Register of Deeds of Cedric County, Tanya Buckingham. And we do have one other very, very special piece oh, of information dear. that was just revealed to us. Hot off the presses, ladies and gentlemen. Take it away, Tanya. What happened on Valentine's Day? Well, on Valentine's Day, someone, Mike Tywater, asked me to marry him. Come up here, Mike. And he actually is here. Come on up here, in Mike. In the station. Come Mike, on up, Mike. Come a few bars. Talk to your girl, man. Come on. Real fast. No, you know what? It's been almost three years, and... Uh... She's she's definitely the one. So last <laughs> <laughs> right. go right here. No, put him on the spot. Congratulations! Yeah, I put him all the way on the spot. It's about time. Oh okay. man, you guys have been dilly dallying. Most most listeners don't even know that I'm in the studio. Yo. It is about time. Congratulations to you both. Yeah. I am very happy for so. both of you. Well, now Amen. everybody knows. There you go. All right. All right, listeners, I know your hearts are saddened because the glorious Tanya Buckingham is now officially taken off the market. <laughs> but uh, we just want to let you know that we love and appreciate everything you do. We'll be searching out uh, TanyaBuckingham.com and supporting you in your Thank run for you. re-election. Great job. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. All right, next week's guest host, once again, will be Representative Stephen Owens. And the events that we have coming up are the Republican Women United. Their meetings are held on the second Saturday of the month. At 9.30 uh, is when they have their start their social. It starts at 10 a.m. at the Wichita Area Builders Association at 7.30 North Main in the heart of Wichita. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.